Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Thank you, Paul, and let me begin particularly by thanking uh, Mr. Riley for his very thoughtful and provocative talk. Uh, I think he raises a very important question, and that is, how does the Catholic University engage the culture? It's a critical question because only by engaging the culture can we counter the growing threat to our religious liberties. In a sense, the answer is in some respects simple. Catholic universities are most effective in engaging the culture when they perform well those roles they were created to fulfill. What roles do I imply by this? In many respects, it's similar to what Mr. Riley was suggesting. First and foremost, we most obviously educate, but not just any form or a more generic definition of education. While there were notable precursors to the modern university in the ancient world, the university was created in the late Middle Ages with the specific goal of preserving and developing knowledge, which meant everything from Catholic theology to the various sciences that were then developing in the monasteries and urban centers across Europe. As Lowry Daly explained, the Catholic Church, and I quote, was the only institution in Europe that showed consistent interest in the preservation and cultivation of knowledge. The schools that developed early on in Bologna, Paris, Oxford, and subsequently Cambridge in the late 12th century and early 13th centuries were formed, fostered, and partially staffed by local cathedrals. Soon the Vatican itself was involved. Thomas Woods reports that of the 81 universities formed by the time of the Reformation, 33 of them possessed papal charters, 15 a royal or imperial charter, and 20 had both. A papal charter was considered the most advantageous as it allowed the university to offer degrees that would be recognized throughout Christendom. In the coming centuries, the papacy increasingly uh, intervene on numerous occasions to help fund the universities, to protect them from a variety of local and occasionally foreign threats. Conversely, from the dawn of the university, scholars were expected to grasp the canon of Western thought, which included but was never limited to Catholic teaching. The faith is one way of knowing reason another. This is why John Paul uh, II's, uh, St. John Paul II's metaphor is particularly apropos. Faith and reason really are two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of the truth. In subsequent centuries, as universities developed increasingly specialized areas of study, they continued to focus on the transference of the canon and the liberal arts more broadly defined as one of their central functions. Today, this vital task falls primarily to the university's core curriculum. A core curriculum, sometimes called general education requirements, is basically a set of courses that every student must take. Nearly every university or college has a core curriculum. When designed correctly, there are courses which will help form a well-rounded and complete individual by developing in them an appreciation of the wealth and variety of knowledge. Typically, the core curriculum comprises about half of the 120 to 126 credit hours necessary for a bachelor's degree. But by the 1960s, with the, relevant, with the advent of moral relativism and the relativism of knowledge, many in the academy no longer believed in absolute truth. Without a firm definition of truth, all knowledge was deemed, by definition, equal. Thus, while many in the academy still wanted to expose students to a variety of disciplines, increasingly any course in a given discipline was accepted as having equal value. The trend began in public universities, but soon spread to Christian and even Catholic universities, many of which lost part, much of their Catholic identity. Franciscan and other small colleges were less harmed by this trend, as they had fewer, I would call, silly courses to choose from. However, even here, too, um, choice was beginning to enter in. Thus, while our Franciscan new students never could choose 20th century or 21st century feminist literature 
or the graphic novel in place of Shakespeare, uh, they weren't able to choose um, a, a course in secular humanism or over Catholic theology, but nonetheless what was happening as critical knowledge was being missed when students were unable to make ideal choices or their advisors didn't guide them in that direction. Thus, three years ago, Franciscan University, I think, took a very major step forward by introducing a new core curriculum, which from my perspective, the faculty formed a core that is one we can and should be proud of. The second thing a Catholic University role it plays, it can do, is to form its students well. To do this, we must integrate virtue into all aspects of university life. Here at Franciscan, the footprints of this effort are pervasive and deep. According to a recent spiritual life survey of our students, the vast majority of faculty pray regularly with their students. More generally, students see their faculty members as positive role models for their faith life. Faculty and staff help out by participating in household lives, where nearly half of them are coordinated by faculty members of their spouses. Faculty also lead mission trips and work with students on their missions of mercy. Academic events should also be used as important to discuss important and even controversial topics. However, speakers should not normally contradict or create confusion with regard to Catholic teaching. This is a delicate balance for a Catholic university to maintain. I believe here at Franciscan we have an excellent speaker's policy. We do not honor those who disagree with Catholic teaching. However, a faculty member may propose any speaker, but if a speaker himself or herself opposes Catholic teaching or creates confusion, the faculty member who is hosting the event is obliged to point out the differences and to explain the correct interpretation of Catholic teaching. When done well, extracurricular activities also play a critical role in students' moral formation. Frankly, at no university, and I would include my own alma mater here, is sports are are, is sports better integrated into the mission of the university than here at Franciscan? As their mission statement explains, and I quote, the purpose of athletics is to assist students in obtaining a well-rounded education consistent with the university's liberal arts, philosophy, and Franciscan tradition. It goes on to say, those individuals responsible for the athletic program are expected to foster and maintain the values and goals associated with the mission of the university as an institution of higher education. Third, faculty and students perform service to the community, to the church, and to their respective disciplines. In the course of their regular duties, faculty members should give public talks and participate in professional organizations. Service is an obligation for every faculty member. We appraise it on an annual basis. Catholic universities have every right to believe that this service will serve the church and its teachings. At a minimum, Catholic universities have the right to expect that this service will not undermine Catholic teaching or cause scandal. Fourth and finally, faculty, artistry, and scholarship are an important part of the life of faculty members. Like service, scholarship and artistry is expected of faculty, university faculty members. It was one of the original purposes of the university when the church first formed them. When blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman called for the renewal of Catholic universities in his idea of the university, he said, and I quote, it, it, meaning the university, is a place where inquiry is pushed forward, discoveries are verified and perfected, and rashness rendered innocuous and error exposed by collision of mind with mind and knowledge with knowledge. Finally, along the same theme, in Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, uh, St. John Paul II said, the Catholic University, and I quote, has always been recognized as an incomparable center of creativity and dissemination of knowledge for the good of humanity. By vocation, the Universitas Magistorum et Scholarium is dedicated to research, to teaching, and to the education of students who freely associate with their teachers in a common love of knowledge. Thus, universities can and should expect scholarship from their faculty. The Catholic Church created the gift that is the modern Catholic university. 
the Catholic Church has funded, protected, and developed universities, particularly those more than 200 American universities run by various Catholic dioceses and orders like our own. Thus, the Church has every right to believe that Catholic universities will hire faculty whose scholarship and artistry will support the truth of the Catholic Church. Thank you. Okay, um, I have a little bit of overlap with Dr. Kempton, but not too much, not too much. Hopefully there'll be a little bit left for Father Sean to say after we're finished. <laughs> Sorry, he's last. So, yeah. It's okay, I can talk around. Yeah, so. All right, so Patrick Riley has described numerous ways that Catholic higher education can and should be a leader in the Catholic Church's response to actual and potential threats to religious freedom. While many of these methods rightly center around the work of a Catholic university's faculty, some of these strategies directly involve, or at least imply, the involvement of student life and pastoral staff. For example, the goal of Christian formation related to sexual purity in marriage certainly is one to which student life and pastoral efforts can contribute through various programs, policies, the availability of the sacraments, preaching, and other efforts. This work of student formation is essential, Riley argues, um, because Catholics who really understand and are committed to their faith are required for us to successfully defend the church and religious freedom. It is much more difficult, perhaps impossible even, for an uncatechized or lukewarm Catholic to resist the political, legal, and cultural pressures that are promoting secularism and the privatization of religion, which in turn are contributing to the erosion of religious liberty. So in a few moments here, um, these few moments, I want to expand a bit on the role that student life and pastoral care at a Catholic university can play in fostering religious freedom in our nation, perhaps a connection that's not quite so obvious. Student life and pastoral care departments have a significant role, though not the sole responsibility, to help students while, they're at, while they are at school to integrate faith with their daily decisions and lives. This is primarily because student life and pastoral care staff and programs encounter and engage students during the many hours each week when students are not involved in explicitly academic activities. The times when students are living in the residence halls, playing on intramural or intercollegiate athletic teams, serving and reaching out to those in need, organizing dances and coffee houses and social activities, or just hanging out with friends. This integration of faith with the choices and decisions of daily life is essential to the Catholic identity of a college or university. But I would argue it is also essential to the promotion of religious liberty. As our president, Father Sean Sheridan, shared at the 2014 Cardinal Newman Society Conference for Student Life Leaders, it is precisely through this integration of faith with daily life that Catholic universities witness to and promote religious freedom properly understood. And I quote here, Father Sean, if Catholic universities do not connect faith with daily life, if we fail to infuse residence life, athletics, student activities, etc., with the truths of the Catholic faith, then we ourselves are unwittingly reducing our God-given and constitutionally guaranteed right to the freedom of religion to a mere freedom of worship, and thereby buying into the very premises of secularism. End quote. In other words, if we claim that people of faith should be able to integrate their faith into their daily lives in our society, then Catholic schools have to also believe that their students are able to integrate the faith into their daily lives while they are students. This, the integration of faith with our daily lives is not an easy task. The Franciscan charism of ongoing conversion reminds us that each person has to turn away from sin and selfishness and turn toward God and His love, not once, but over and over again on a daily basis. In contemporary American culture, increasingly ascendant forces and trends such as relativism, hedonism, materialism, consumerism, narcissism, and nihilism make it increasingly difficult to live in a manner that integrates faith with the activities of regular daily life. Students need access to a culture that supports them in growing in their faith and integrating that faith with the regular normal choices facing a college student in 21st century America. Here at Franciscan University, I think it is accurate to say that such a culture is the predominant, though not exclusive, culture on campus. In another school where this might not be the case, I believe that at least a viable subculture that supports the faith of seriously Catholic students must be in place. 
But what are, the, what are the elements of this supportive culture that truly integrates faith with life, that promotes virtue and holiness? Based on the experience here at Franciscan University, I would suggest that such a culture has at least four characteristics, which I'll describe here briefly. First of all, such a culture intentionally combats compartmentalization. Even at a place like Franciscan University, among the thousands of students and faculty and staff who are Orthodox, faithful, practicing Catholics, who enroll in record numbers of theology courses, who celebrate the sacraments frequently, and who pray countless holy hours, there can be a temptation to compartmentalize certain aspects of our lives, to keep certain activities hidden from the light of our faith. This could be, might be a particular relationship in our life, or how we spend our Friday nights. Everyone here is spending Friday night very well so far, yes. <laughs> or our shopping habits, or our behavior on the intramural field. There is not time to discuss how or why such a disintegration occurs so often. I would say it's partly tied to good old original sin. But I would point out that it is essential that this tendency is identified and intentionally addressed. We need, we need to teach our students and ourselves, faculty and staff, through word and example that no area of our life, even the most secular, is beyond the light of faith. It is possible, I think, that a student who comes to understand that faith makes a difference in, say, how they play sports will actually be more open to the possibility that faith makes a difference in other aspects of their lives, such as their sexuality. Second, uh, community structures. If students are to learn how to integrate faith into their daily life decisions as maturing men and women, they need friendship and a, and a supportive community. The family is the first such community, and students may also have youth groups and friends back home we serve as role models and encouragers to them. But if a student has moved away from home to go to school, this remote support from people who are not bodily present is usually not sufficient, even in today's virtual age of cell phones, Facebook, and text messaging. Students need a community that accompanies them during both the sacred and secular activities of daily life, going to mass with them, eating meals together, working out with them, painting their nails, playing in the snow. Uh, they need friends and peers who model the integration of faith with 21st century young adult life in the United States of America, and to encourage them not just virtually with a text or an Instagram, but physically with a hug or a friendly pat on the back or a smile. Here at Franciscan University, there are a number of these communities, athletic teams, student clubs, and our residence hall communities. But of course, our hallmark community structure here is our household system, which ultimately, in its essence, exists for the purpose of helping students learn how to integrate their faith into their, into their daily vocations as students and into every other aspect of their lives. Thirdly, the witness of faculty and staff, which has been mentioned before this evening. Sometimes this is uh, described as hiring for mission. We talk about that here sometimes in that term. Um, this should not be confused with a minimum requirement of understanding the mission or even of supporting the mission. Rather, students need to see adults of all ages as witnesses to the fact that the faith can, in fact, be integrated with real, normal lives, with their families, with how they conduct themselves, both during work and outside of work. I see this played out here at Franciscan University in a number of ways, when faculty and staff and their families attend Mass on campus, when faculty and staff serve as advisors for households or mission trips, when faculty and staff invite students into their homes for meals or social events. <clears throat> the credibility of our teaching and preaching and exhortation on the faith is dependent to a large degree on the quality of our witness. As blessed Paul VI taught in his apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Nutiande, this is number 41, and I quote, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And if he does listen to teachers, it is because they are witnesses, end quote. Fourth, the witness of fellow students. Uh, in a survey administered here at Franciscan University last year, Dr. Kempton referenced it earlier, over 900 students gave us feedback regarding their faith practices and their faith lives. When students were asked about what at Franciscan University contributed in a significant way to their growth in faith, many aspects of life at the university were indicated. Their classes, their time in Austria, households, athletics, guest speakers, <coughs> retreats. Students said that all of these were important. But as a follow-up question, students were asked to select the one influence that was the most important factor in their growth in faith. And there actually was a statistical tie for first place. 
Um, perhaps not surprising, the sacramental life at Franciscan University was one of these two first place finishers. But just as many students said that the most important factor in their growth in faith was the lived witness of their fellow students. And when combined with students who said that households were the most important factor in their faith growth, households were the third place finisher, um, over 40% of students told us in effect that a daily life with fellow students of faith who called them on to holiness was the number one factor in their growth in faith. So I would argue a very important part of a campus culture that effectively helps students integrate faith with daily life includes at least a critical mass and preferably a sizable majority of fellow students who are also striving to live out their faith. So to recap, these four themes essential to a student culture that helps students integrate faith with life are combating compartmentalization, intentional community structures, the witness of faculty and staff, and the witness of fellow students. In conclusion, there are many ways that Catholic colleges and universities promote religious liberty and thereby serve the church and society. One critical way that this can be accomplished is by evangelizing our own students, helping them to deepen their faith and to bring that faith to bear on each and every aspect of their lives. This prepares them to desire and to defend that same freedom after they graduate. The freedom not just to worship or the freedom just to pray, but in the words, again, of blessed Paul VI, to bring, quote, the good news into all the strata of humanity and through its influence, transform humanity from within and make it new, end quote. Thank you. Uh, please allow me to begin by thanking Patrick Riley personally for his insightful comments tonight um, and to be able to lead us in this discussion on many important topics that we face in Catholic education, uh, particularly in Catholic higher education. Uh, as Dr. Symington said at the beginning of our discussion tonight, my background uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, is in canon law, and most people here know that, but I also have a background in civil law. So a lot of my scholarly research has a, somewhat of a unique uh, perspective to it because I try to uh, come to the point where the two fields merge together, the intersection of canon law and civil law, uh, as I try to explore issues that pertain to Catholic education and particularly uh, that pertain to Catholic universities. Uh, it gives me great comfort, great consolation to see other people excited about saying things about ex cordia ecclesiae and gravissimum educationes and talking about secularism and relativism and religious freedom and all the issues that we in Catholic higher education face today. So I'm glad I'm not the only geek that gets excited about those, those kind of things uh, in our life today. But I would also argue that when Pope, uh, now St. John Paul II, issued Ex Cordia Ecclesiae back in 1990, he was really looking with the vision um, of setting that roadmap for us, those of us who are involved in Catholic higher education, so that we can be prepared to address the kind of issues that we face today. Um, in his document, Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, he said, my hope is that these prescriptions based on the teaching of Vatican Council II and the directives of the Code of Canon Law, another topic that really excites me, uh, will enable Catholic universities and other institutes of higher studies to fulfill their indispensable mission in the new advent of grace that is opening up to the new millennium. An indispensable mission that we have as being part of this great, this great endeavor called Catholic higher education. Since Ex Cordia Ecclesiae was promulgated some 25 years ago, there have been many, many discussions about how to implement it and the various problems that Catholic universities should face in trying to implement Ex Cordia Ecclesiae. And we've talked about a number of them here tonight. Catholic identity, how do you promote Catholic identity? What does it mean to be a good and faithful Catholic institution promoting uh, members of the faculty who are faithful to the church, who have good sound doctrine in the ways in which they teach, but also in which the way in which they live their lives, the probity of their life, the witness, the example of their lives, because they teach not only with their words in the classroom, but the example of how they live their faithful Catholic life outside of the classroom. Many challenges have been raised on how you implement that in our lives, in Catholic universities in general, but are grateful that our experience here at Franciscan University has been somewhat unique because we have so many people who want to remain faithful to the call of St. John Paul II to remain good, 
faithful Catholic Orthodox institution. I remember in one of the uh, versions of the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the Newman Guide on choosing a Catholic institution, the dedication to that Newman Guide was dedicated to Father Michael Scanlon, the president of Franciscan University for some 26 years. And the dedication said to Father Michael Scanlon for showing us that it is possible. And Father Michael certainly did that. Even many of the things that he implemented here at Franciscan University predate Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, almost as if he was able to read the mind of the legislator in going forward, recognizing that it is in being faithful to what the church asks of us that we will truly shine as a Catholic university, being leaders in Catholic education. And for that, I am very grateful for the ways in which Father Michael has helped to form Franciscan University into what we are today and continue to strive to be as a faithful Catholic institution. Uh, last summer, now Bishop Robert Barron issued uh, a book um, called Seeds of the Word, Finding God in the Culture, in which one of the articles in this book talks about some of the challenges that have been raised by other Catholic universities. Um, well-meaning, well-intended Catholic universities, but not always striving to live out the faith through their witness, through their example. Uh, but Bishop Barron really, really called us all to task on trying to remain faithful, trying to do what God is inviting us to do as being a faithful Catholic university. And he said, what a Catholic university should never do is to surrender its own identity or to make apologies for its own deepest commitments. A Catholic center of higher learning should never acquiesce in its own secularization in order to participate in the public conversation. We should remain true to our own deepest commitments as a Catholic university and never acquiesce in our own secularization. Secularization and radical, radical secularization and, and the influx of moral relativism are topics that our Holy Fathers have really tried to emphasize uh, in the last three pontificates, starting with Pope John Paul II, also with a discussion of Pope Benedict XVI, and now into the pontificate of Pope Francis. Uh, pope Benedict talked about the, the problem of secularization in one of his ad limina addresses with a group of American bishops who were meeting with him uh, in Rome. And whether coincidentally or not, providentially, his remarks calling all of the bishops, calling all of us here in the United States to avoid radical secularization came about one month prior to the Health and Human Services mandate that required uh, even good faithful institutions to provide contraception and potential abortifacients to the members, all employees of their communities. And it, it, it's really something that Pope Benedict called us to challenge in various ways, standing up for our goals, our, our, our ability to be able to live out our Catholic faith, to be able to protect ourselves with those great protections of religious freedom that we have, religious liberty, and have really spurred a lot of the discussion that continue to go on in the courts today. Uh, when Lumen Fidei came out, uh, partially authored by Pope Benedict, but ultimately promulgated by Pope Francis, he also talked about the problem of radical secularism, which said, he said, leads ultimately to the degradation of moral relativism as well. And when we embrace those principles of secularism, putting God only uh, being able to celebrate in our free, uh, free, through a process of freedom of worship in our churches, rather than bringing our faith authentically into the public square, it causes us to really dismiss God. And God no longer is an essential part of our lives. And if you think about that, that's really scary to all of us who strive to remain as faithful Catholics. If we dismiss the importance, the role of God in our lives, what is there left for us? We need to be, as a university, standing up for those principles of religious freedom, standing up for the truths that we know that come to us from the church, and being able to be the voice of reason, to be the voice of truth in our world today. Uh, Bishop Barron, in his book, also said, this is why the first universities of Bologna, Paris, Oxford, and Cambridge emerge precisely out of the milieu of the church. 
ex corde ecclesiae, born from the heart of the church. He said in the 13th century, St. Bonaventure, a professor at the University of Paris, composed an extraordinary text called Christ the Center. The gravamen whose argument is that Jesus, the Logos, is at the heart of physics, mathematics, history, and metaphysics. In the mid-19th century, John Henry Newman, in a series of lectures entitled The Idea of a University, made much the same assertion. The Jesus reverenced by the great tradition belongs, therefore, very much in the public square and around the table of intellectual conversation. In that context, he poses no threat to legitimate expressions of reason, and he serves as a trump to the unreason that can surface easily enough in the sciences, in politics, or in philosophy. A Catholic university worthy of the name is a place where Jesus the Logos has this essential regulating role. Here at Franciscan University, we strive to follow the example of those early Catholic universities and the manner in which we embrace the search for truth and the dialogue between faith and reason while recognizing that the source of all truth is God himself. As St. John Paul II recognized in Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, a Catholic university places itself in the middle of the dialogue between faith and reason, an interaction that would not be found in a typical secular university. As centers for the new evangelization, Catholic universities and members of the university family are compelled to embark on an ongoing conversion to be authentic witnesses to the faith, to the manner in which we teach, to the manner in which we witness through our lives, through how we adhere to the teachings of the church. Catholic universities should continue to promote the teachings of our faith in the public square, in scholarship, and in the many decisions that are made for a Catholic university. Education, catechetics, and theology are all key to the new evangelization, and all of us have a role to play in educating ourselves, in living out our faith, and in drawing others to Christ. As Pope Francis has modeled for us over and over again, we must always strive to do that with great joy, with great passion, and great fidelity to Mother Church. Thank you. There are a number of ways in which uh, a, a Catholic college university Catholic College University as a community of learning can, can tend to be very insular. Uh, it can be very good within that community, but very often does not have the relationships outside of that. And so some of the discussion that was, was made here in terms of, of always trying to reach out, making sure that faculty are involved in various associations and such. Um, uh, involvement with, with the parents and with the laity um, I, th I think that uh, my experience, and this is going back you know, almost three decades ago, uh, when I attended a Catholic college, uh, was that uh, the, the certainly young people going off to college are eager for that independence, right? Uh, they're eager to be on their own, uh, and yet they still want that relationship with the parents more or less, and they certainly want that advice and support, especially when they're having difficulties. Um, the, the ones who seemed much far more eager for complete independence from the parents were the people in the student life, uh, were, were the administrators at the institution. I mean, the, the message we got repeatedly was, you are a young adult now, you are completely on your own, uh, uh, and and the, the institution itself had very little interest in, in any communication from the parents. Uh, and, I, and I think we, we still see that very much today uh, in which um, not only have, uh, have our institutions not interested in the parents, but they're certainly not interested in the, in the whole in loco parentis role that they used to have. Uh, in the sense of 
of having any responsibility for the students. The idea today is that, that young people, at the moment they step on campus, are completely on their own and completely able to handle themselves and don't need much support in that process unless there's a, a major crisis. So then we'll have the, you know, the health center, we'll have the, the counseling center, we'll have something else available for major crises. But uh, otherwise, you know, students are well prepared for this. And the fact is they're, they're not. Um, you know, they've been prepared often in many ways, but one of the things, I was just talking to another college president at one of the colleges in our Newman Guide who was saying that one of his great concerns is that a very significant number of students, increasingly, an increasing number of students coming to his institutions are coming with uh, a whole variety of, of, um, of psychological issues uh, or, or, or uh, chemical issues in the sense that they're, they're on a whole variety of medications. And, and he said it's becoming increasingly complex to deal with that. You know, and the, certainly with the intention that he wants to deal with it, not, not trying to run away from the problem, but that young people uh, today are increasingly coming with, you know, they're, they're coming with depression or you know, chemical issues, uh, and they're on a whole variety of um, uh, psycho, psychiatry, you know, drugs, and, uh, and, and dealing with that. So there are all these issues where a, a stronger collaboration between the schools and the parents uh, would, be, would be beneficial. Uh, and, in, and a hearing from the parents in terms of what, what parents expect from Catholic institutions. And I think generally what you hear for those institutions that are talking to parents and are really listening, the parents will say, especially at a Catholic institution, they will say that they want that institution to be really forming their son or daughter. It's not just that they want to provide them you know, the security of a good job and, and, and all of that. And, and parents really want that. And so that dialogue with parents, uh, I think, would be very fruitful. Um, how you carry that out, uh, you might have better ideas about how that happens here or how that might happen in a, in a better sense. I think that's where I was going with that. Um, uh, specifically in terms of religious liberty and religious freedom, um, you know, I just talked a lot about the, the primary obligation that we really need educators to be explaining what it is that they do and why it's valuable and why it's important. Because if they're not saying it, then it's very difficult for everybody else to say it for them uh, and, and, uh, and to have the sense that it really is valuable if the educators themselves aren't saying that. But uh, I do think that, that one other valuable voice in all of this are, are the, the parents and are the families to be, the, the fact is most Catholics today, as I started out talking about, don't appreciate Catholic education. But there are parents whose sons or daughters have gone to institutions like this and have a firsthand knowledge of the great benefits and value of this. And so I guess that would be another way of collaborating with parents and with families in, in expressing and voicing to the public what a great value Catholic education is and, and how that's, that's uh, made obvious or apparent to the parents in, in their children. Yeah, I have a, don't have a lot of uh, thoughts on that, at least, uh, maybe not directly, but some at least tangential thoughts um, to that. One, I, I think uh, it is important that, that a Catholic college university would, would strike a balance um, because uh, it's, it, the Catholic college university is no longer high school. So uh, there should be a different kind of relationship, I believe, um, with, with the parents than would exist, say, at the high school level. And I, I don't believe that the returning to an in loco parentis arrangement is, uh, is in the best interest of, of anyone involved. Um, that being said, I, I think um, the, uh, what we would recognize that uh, while many women coming to college, traditionally, are, are at least legally adults or close to it, um, they are maturing still. They're, and uh, recent um, research indicates even more so that they're still maturing and that that maturation process doesn't really complete until mid, mid to late 20s, um, physiologically even. And uh, so that, that reality needs to be recognized. And just because someone turns 18 does not mean they're automatically, um, they might have uh, 
something approaching the body of an adult, but there's still some, some work to be done there. So I think what the, there's a lot of wisdom in a traditional model that says, a, a traditional residential model that says, we, um, yes, you're, you're leaving home. Um, you're not with your, your mom or dad anymore, mom and dad anymore, but there still is a supportive community that is going to, pro, that's going to promote, um, propose, encourage the same values um, uh, that your parents did. And so I think it's important that a school would be upfront with, these are the values, these are the things that we promote, that we propose, um, the structures we have in place, and uh, we welcome uh, parents to be aware of that. Um, we, we, we don't want to hide it from them. We don't want to have you know, secret sessions, you know, that kind of secret information that we only share with, with students. We really want the parents to be, uh, be able to, to view this information as well and to participate. One concrete example I can think of, let's like, say here at Franciscan is, uh, during orientation, we have a session um, on Saturday morning with all the new students and their parents. It's called what every parent and new student needs to know. And we talk about sort of how we approach life at Franciscan University. And it's a relatively frank talk that talks about things including sex, drugs, and alcohol. And it's, it's an opportunity, I think, to, um, to be upfront with parents. Say, here's what we do here at Franciscan. Here's what we don't do. Um, and uh, hopefully that, that mat mesh, mesh, uh, meshes with your expectations as well. But um, so I think, again, yeah, recognizing college university is a transition. It's no longer high school, but it's also not, not full, full adult life. Um, there are more freedoms, many more freedoms than perhaps um, before. But there's still that supportive structure, that family-like family -like structure that um, can support and back up what the parents um, uh, believe and, and are supporting as well. So those are perhaps a few thoughts related to that. And if I could just add uh, one comment to that, because I, I think this melds together a little bit of what both Patrick and David were saying, is it is a point at which the student's relationship with the parent begins to change in a fairly dramatic way, but it's still a relationship that it's very vital that it continue. And I think the partnership in some ways exists in helping that relationship to make the change where, uh, and I'll give you a concrete example. So many universities use the FERPA laws as a way of keeping the parents out of the student's life. I think that's wrong. I used to teach at a public university. FERPA was generally not talked about if it could, if you could be avoided with the parents. Whereas I do think because of the changing relationship, your role changes from direct involvement in your student's life. And this is what I say to the parents, sign the FERPA, get your student to sign it, but if everything goes well, don't, you, don't use it. What you should be doing is reaching that point where you're life coach, you know, where you're encouraging them, you're talking to them, they're bringing you into the issues, but you're no longer intervening for them. I mean, we do have an age of helicopter parenting. That's not what we're trying to inculcate, but we still need very much to form the partnership I think your question was asking about. I think that's vital. Well, certainly that discussion is is going going on in a and in, in getting heated. You know, there's uh, Wyoming Catholic College, uh, one of the newer, well, the newest of the Catholic colleges, um, very strong faithful institution, has decided not to get involved with student loans and, and student aid because of the concerns about that. Um, you know, I basically say I, my argument is basically currently. There is nothing yet that, uh, that ought to prevent a faithful Catholic institution from participating in those programs. I think the real fear, and I'm, I'm sure that's been discussed here, is once you get into those programs, getting out is very difficult. Um, of course, it's, it's going to be very difficult for Wyoming Catholic never to get in. It's very difficult to compete with other institutions that are, in, are involved in those programs and to compete for students. It's just, it's awfully difficult for an institution of, of Catholic higher education, especially one that's, that has, is of any size. You know, Wyoming Catholic has the benefit of being rather small and they can sustain that for a while. Um, but yeah, there are, there, are, there are things coming down the pike that we're very concerned about, especially if, uh, you know, in the wake of the, the same-sex marriage ruling, the next step is to integrate that into all of the non-discrimination law which has not yet happened on the federal level. It is happening on the state level. And that could start to have a real impact. You know, we could see strings being attached to, to federal aid 
through that. At this point, it's not there. So, I, you know, do I foresee that coming? I, I, I'm kind of, I'm afraid that yes, that that's coming. Um, but, uh, which is, is going to be a very significant hardship for, for Catholic colleges and universities. Um, I don't know if, what, what, if you guys have thoughts of that. I'm sure it's been Well, discussed. I mean, even the, the more imminent thing has to do with the loss of the potential um, tax-exempt status as well. Right. Uh, if you don't comply with certain provisions at the federal government and the, with the interpretation of the courts as to whether or not uh, these are provisions that could jeopardize that status. Right, mm -hmm. right, which is more uh, an mm -hmm. impact on on donations, right? On, right. On the income. I mean, totally. I mean, everything. Right. Um, and then the other issue is accreditation mm -hmm. that I think is a very significant threat right now to Catholic higher education in that accreditors already have very strict rules with regard to non-discrimination and all they need to do is interpret that in a way that, that screens out Catholic institutions and there have already been calls for that. So, um, uh, yeah, and all of it put together is is a rather scary prospect. Can I ask a follow-up on that last point? Do you think that um, the notion of Catholic accreditation is a viable accreditation? Uh, it's, it's, again, that's something that's been very much discussed. Um, the problem is, is what do you mean by accreditation? Accreditation in general is peer approval in order to provide people uh, you know, some confidence in the institution. That certainly would be possible. Can, is there a possibility of having a Catholic accrediting association that is recognized by the Department of Education and allows them to participate in, in loan programs? I don't know. I, I think it's even more difficult now that there was a, an accreditor called the, uh, help me out, what was the, uh, the liberal arts? Right, American Association of and it was the first national accrediting association recognized by the education department. It was focused primarily on very strong liberal arts institutions. A number of good, faithful Catholic colleges were, were at least starting to get involved with that, and the whole thing collapsed. Uh, I think uh, the argument is mismanagement. I don't really know the details, so I don't want to accuse anything, but it fell apart, and the, the education department basically well, has, has unrecognized it. And I think that makes it all the more difficult to do anything to, to get that type of an agency approved for access to federal funds. I guess I can start by saying, I think we do that first by doing it ourselves. And I am, having come here from a much larger institution, one of about 24,000 undergraduates, I am constantly amazed by the quality of faculty, the quality of staff who come here. They could get jobs with higher pay, with more prestige, but so many people have clearly chosen to come here because they love the mission of the university, the unique combination of our educational um, offerings combined with our passionately Catholic nature. So as long as the faculty and the staff continue to live that witness of themselves being motivated by a love for a Lord and by the, the love for a mission, I'm very hopeful our students, because the students actually inspire me every day. I'm just amazed by the quality of students we attract, so I would say the same thing about them. Many of them could go to what the secular world recognizes as much higher institutions. We've had athletes who could have been D1 athletes who had scholarships that came here instead. So to be surrounding yourself with people like that helps me stay focused on why I'm here. Yeah, last year the, the theme for the university was living the joy of the gospel. Uh, and I think it really summarizes everything in which the w way we need to approach life in general. Uh, is just recognizing the joy in everything that we are able to do because we're doing it at the service of God uh, and being able to live out that authentic call, that authentic witness to what God is inviting us to do. Whether you're working as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a priest, as a religious, uh, whatever God is inviting you to do to embrace that uh, as being of service to the Lord and, and living it out to the fullest that you can. Um, 
until you got to the very end there, I thought you were going a certain direction, and maybe that's because there were where I was going. So let me go that way in a second, um, or go that way for a second. Um, the, in terms of love and necessity, one of the things that that uh, you know in talking about religious freedom and the threats of religious freedom to Catholic education. Um, that we found that, that I think in some ways is a very positive side of the threats to religious freedom is that because of the necessity that that, that is created for Catholic institutions to defend themselves, um, we're finding doors opening to the things that we have always been pushing for a long time. And so in some ways that's kind of the thrust of, of, of my paper in the sense, and that's kind of where it's coming from, in that um, you know, for years, Cardinal Newman Society, and long before we were doing it, people were making the argument that against secularization in Catholic higher education uh, and in, in Catholic schools, that we, we need to maintain strong Catholic identity and, and do this the right way. And that has had, you know, basically that argument has, has lost steadily as, as Catholic education has eroded uh, generally and yet then institutions like Franciscan and a number of others have, have cropped up. Um, but with the religious freedom pressures, uh, there are suddenly all these doors opening to being able to talk about, for example, hiring for mission um, mentioned. Uh, you know, that's something, that's a buzzword that's been long around, around a long time, hire people who are truly committed to the mission of the institution. Well, now it's no longer just a matter of do that because you want to have a strong, vibrant Catholic institution. Now it's do that or else the government's going to step in and control everything else that you do because they're not going to recognize your institution as a religious institution mm -hmm. and therefore you no longer have any protection from government interference. So you'll have a number of institutions that maybe yeah, and a number of these are, are good faithful institutions that maybe just didn't all have all their ducks in a row in terms of their policies, making certain that, that all of these requirements were, were in their policies in terms of what faculty can and should not do or who we're going to hire and who we're not going to hire. Now all of a sudden, we're getting it all together. This project of Catholic higher education is getting tighter uh, in the sense of, you know, we're tightening down our policies uh, because of the pressures that were coming under uh, from these religious liberty threats. And that's, all in all, I think that's a good thing. You know, we certainly, we don't want people doing things, basically, as you said, we'd rather people weren't doing things out of necessity, we'd rather they're doing things out of love because they really believe in what Catholic higher education should do. But we live in a fallen world and, and, uh, and that movement has generally been good. I, I would also argue, you know, the bishops, and is another example. The bishops, it's not that the bishops didn't want or didn't care about a lot of these issues, but this has forced the bishops to really put a lot of attention to getting uh, our, the Catholic identity of Catholic institutions under control. Mm -hmm. Because now it's not just a matter of let's, let's get the church in order. It's now it's a matter of we're going to lose it all if we don't. Because we're no longer going to have any standing in the courts to claim uh, First Amendment protections from, from what the government is doing. So, just another thought on that. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.